This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. You know, it really is um, unfortunate when you have that I've grown up moment. And for me, it happened over the weekend in Boston when I realized that both Greg Wyshynski and I were in the same city for a few days and saw each other for a cozy. What do you say, Wish? About 90 seconds at the Winter Classic? Roughly. Roughly 90 seconds. Uh, <laughs> I got to see you. I got to see you geek out about uh, going up on the Green Monster. Yeah, I've. I think the last yes, time I saw you that yes. happy was when somebody slipped you a, a VHS tape from the 1959 Sarnia Sting uh, <laughs> at a MS meetup. But no, it's yeah. I mean, yes, again, yes, like yes. We, we're both busy individuals. For Boston, for me, it was an in a, a quick in and out because um, I wasn't around on the first. I took the extra day for family time and then came in that night nice. and then was there for the actual game because really. All ESPN wants me to do is walk around with a, a camera and take pictures of, like, spaghetti David Pasternak statues and people in fur coats taking shots <laughs> at the uh, at the fan fest. So that's, that's usually my gig. It's uh, it, it was real cool, nonetheless. Like, what did you... um? Hang on one, one second. If we could just bring the music down. I'm kind of having a hard time here in Wish here. We've kind of gone on for a minute. That would be great. Thank you. Uh, that was the first time I had ever been to Fenway. Like, I grew mm-hmm. up a huge baseball fan, still am, you know, American League East, so the Jays are getting roughed up by the Red Sox and getting roughed up by the New York Yankees on the regular. So you grew up hating both of those teams, but you want to go to the stadiums. And I always have had this, you know, fantasy about going to, uh, to, to Fenway my entire life and never been able to pull it together for one reason or another. Uh, and as a few people point out to me, it's very on brand that I finally get a chance to go to Fenway and it's to watch a hockey game. This is the second time it's been at Fenway, the Winter Classic. I thought the configuration of the ice was a lot better because you got to mm-hmm. use the monster as a backdrop. What were your wide brush thoughts about this one in Boston, Wish? Well, I too had never been to Fenway Park before. Uh, this week, uh, I grew up a really? Mets fan. Yeah, I grew up a Mets fan. So I was a National League kid. So I had no reason to ah. go to Boston to see my team. And I also, you know, back when the first couple of Winter Classics were happening, I was at Yahoo, which meant that I could dictate terms as to where I traveled, uh, which meant that I could, I, I mostly just said, hey, I'm going to get drunk with my friends on New Year's and then write about the game off the television <laughs> the next day. And they're like, that's fine. <laughs> And then I grew up. Uh, so I, I, I didn't go to the first Fenway game. This one was dope for a couple of reasons. Um, one is, like you said, the orientation of the ring to the green monster made some of the most unique seats in sports also the best seats for a hockey game. They were center ice, which is mind-blowing. Like, you know, yeah. you could see why those, those tickets were going for north of $2,000 uh, before the game. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, people have come to the conclusion i think a lot of hockey fans that the bloom is off the rose when it comes to these outdoor games and and that might be true from a a national you know international perspective um as a television property let's say you know unless it's in a really really unique location it's probably not going to resonate with the casual fan they might not even have it on their radar but increasingly you know what you see with this is what you see with the all-star game which is that when you're on site for it or when the traveling circus comes to your town, it's a really big deal. And when, when you're there for the game, um, whether you, you you live in the city or you've traveled from the opponent city or you've traveled internationally or wherever, it's like you're in Disneyland. It's really, really cool. And the other part about that, Merrick, yeah. 
And the part that I maybe miscalculated on in the beginnings of this gimmick was that the players love it. And I really thought the players were going to end up treating these games like they treat the All-Star game, like an obligation. Oh, it's, it's, it's messing yeah. up my flow. It's messing up my season. And it's actually the opposite, where these guys look forward to the outdoor games as a way to, A, break up the monotony, B, usually spend time with their families, yeah. and now increasingly, C, get a little goofy about it. I mean, the Bruins are one of the first teams to do this whole costume arrival thing for the outdoor games. And yep. now it's gotten to the point where every team is, is not only like planning to do it, but the planning begins like a year out <laughs> for the Red, for the Bruins to get those Red Sox 1930s uniforms. Patrice Bergeron told me the planning had to basically begin a year ago to figure out a way to acquire <laughs> those jerseys in time for the game. So the enthusiasm for those guys usually, and, and it does depend sometimes on the, on, on the venue, usually shines through and makes the outdoor game thing even better. So with you on the players, because and I, I thought too that might seem like an obligation for these guys, but now it seems like it's part of, you know, it's part of a player's checklist. You know, by the time like you join the NHL, it's like, okay, so what do I want to do while I'm here? Um, Stanley Cup is always number one. You know, first goal, first fight, first whatever. You know, rookie party, like the whole thing. Like there is a box now that these players all have, which says outdoor game, winter classic, stadium series, whatever. You know, like there's all the obvious ones, you know, win uh, the Stanley Cup or an individual trophy, etc. But more and more you find players saying that by the time I'm done, I want to be part of one of these winter classics. And I'm with you as well. As yeah. far as it being a tele- television property, because let's face it, if you're just watching it for the game itself, and I'll use this as an example, um, you know, the, the game that we just saw, Pittsburgh and Boston. You know, the first two periods are kind of a snoozer. Um, because all the conditions aren't controlled, this isn't an NHL environment. Um, you're not going to get players going at 100%. You got players probably going at about 85, just because things are different. That's all. And it's it's to be expected. And so if you're watching this thing on television, you know the the entertainment of where it is kind of wears off after a while. But I didn't see or talk to or see experience anybody who left Fenway the other day and didn't enjoy themselves. Whether they were a Bruins yeah. fan who ended up winning the game or a Penguins fan who just happened to be there because this thing, more than anything else, is a live event. And it's a great event. for. And I was – listen, I was so wrong about this thing. I remember the Snow Globe game, right, Orchard Park, and it's <laughs> Buffalo and Pittsburgh. And I remember saying to myself, okay, gimmicky, you know, could be fun. You know, but let's not burn this thing out. Let's do it like an Olympic cycle and do it once every four years. And then after watching, you know, Crosby score and the snow coming down and, you know, between Ryan Miller's legs and the celebration, the whole deal, I remember saying to myself, man, I could not be more wrong about this. They need to do this every single season. And at some point, although I know there's really not a venue for it in Vegas, I would like to see every team have a shot at getting one of these outdoor games. Yeah, you're going to have to wait for the Oakland A's to relocate before you get that game in Vegas because they're yes. not going to do it with a roof that only opens up no. partially. They learned their lesson in Vancouver. It's a non-starter, and it's one of the main reasons why they're in that Seattle game. Um, I'm with you. And, and I, I was talking to our mutual friend, Down Goes Brown, uh, today, um, and he, he had a really, as he does, had a really interesting idea. 
which is that every season you do like three or four of these. Okay, you have your winter classic, you have your stadium series, yeah. which is your you know B B yeah. B level, you know, your uh, you know, SmackDown to your Raw or whatever. Then you get your, uh, <laughs> your 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 heritage classic, so the Canadian teams can get inside this fun. And uh, and then you do what I affectionately call the the weirdo classic, which is you do one of these games like the Lake Tahoe game, like the one in Banff they talked about. They talked way long ago about doing the game on the deck of an aircraft carrier. If you remember that, like yeah, I remember that. One. Yeah, I remember that classic, conversation. B, B team stadium series, Canadian team heritage classic, and then do one game that will be a lost leader for you because there won't be much attendance and then make that the spectacle Tahoe, Banff, aircraft carrier, glacier, like do one of those every year too. And and that would see one of the issues they have with these outdoor games now, Merrick is that like the number of iconic venues has dwindled. I think we're down to maybe like Lambeau field as like the last, the last horizon (laughs) for, uh, for interesting stadia. Um, but if you do the weirdo classic and bring these games to nature or places where you're not talking about the necessity for capacity, now you've brought in Central Park in New York. Now you've brought in the National Mall in Washington, D.C. They've talked about doing it on the canal in Ottawa, too. Like You're bringing in all yeah. of these really interesting places that, while not necessarily – top of mind as far as venues for regular season national hockey league games that count the standings um could be really really picturesque and cool um and and this would allow you a way to go to those places without like sacrificing winter classic revenue okay i got one i got one for you and i don't even know if logistically they can do this but thinking of your neutral site weirdo classic let's just drop a rink somewhere and have two teams play regardless of you know, who would be considered the home team and who would be the away team? Dubuque County, Iowa. <laughs> Field of Dreams. What's the be- Field of Dreams for hockey? Field All of right. Dreams for hockey. I'm here but for here's it. the thing. Here's, here's, why I say, here, here's, here's why I say that. It seems as if the NHL has come to the realization that this thing works better in a baseball stadium than a football stadium. Football stadium, the rink kind of gets lost because of how big the football stadium is. And listen, they're at T-Mobile next year in Seattle. Um, a, ba- a, a, a baseball stadium has – you have the ability, A, it looks a lot more intimate, and B, you have the ability to do more around the game than you do at a football stadium. And I think that would be a further nod. And it's always – I was having this conversation with, with someone uh, in, in Boston too. It seems as if – the novelty of having a rink in a football stadium isn't as profound as having it in a baseball stadium because football is still a winter sport. So there are still right. people that are there in the winter. When it comes to baseball, you're not seeing people in the monster seats, you know, in the, in, in the beginning of January, for example. <laughs> like it, it, there is still that novelty that we're in a venue where there are not supposed to be people at this moment. And it really works. Mm-hmm. And the themes, yeah. like the motifs, like you mentioned, like, hey, look, it's, is that the Bruins or the Red Sox? Is that the Penguins or the Pirates? Like, all that stuff works. I know the, mm-hmm. you know, the Bobby Orr, you know, throwing out the first puck thing might have been a little, you know, eh, you know a, a dimple on the cheeks and maybe a little bit obvious, but that's fun. Who cares? That's still, that's still a no, good time. No, but that's, that's, would have liked to have seen him, like, put it, put it, put it in the air. 
No, like I said, that's the part of this they figured out finally. Like the reason they went back to Fenway, as as you know, because you've had him on your podcast a bunch, is Steve Mayer, because that dude who puts yeah. together all of these yep. events wasn't there in 2010. That was still, I believe, John Collins's bag back in 2010 Correct. for the league, as far as like yes. the guy who puts on these big spectacles. And and Steve's one of the guys that really cracked the code on on the goofy fun, like you know the, the All Star game when you see the alligators, or at, in Vegas when you saw them shooting pucks on the Bellagio fountains. Like that's kind of Steve Mayer's mm. group that puts those things together. So the fact is, is that the, over time they figured out that you needed some kitsch in these games, whether it's a baseball diamond on a rink and having Bobby Orr throw out the first pitch, by the way, bounce it in there on Ver- on Veritech. I don't know. NHL.com. Says oh, I know. Pitch. I... That's fake news. Folks. No, 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 um, no, 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 no. <laughs> the, uh, or, or, or even going back to the Dodger stadium game with the fake palm trees and, you know, kiss playing. Like they figured out that yeah. there's an inherent goofiness to this whole thing of uh, of playing the games outdoors and they've they've really leaned into it the giant cowboy boot in in the cotton bowl you know all that stuff kind of like adds up to it being fun i'll tell you the the site that i saw that maybe no one saw on television that kind of speaks to that way out in the outfield near the green monster and i don't even know if you could see it from the rink there was a mound of fake snow and in the mound of fake snow was a life-size stuffed bear and two giant plush penguins. And that's somebody oh, yeah, from the yeah, NHL yeah. saying... Yeah, that was off to yeah, the... Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's somebody from the NHL saying, we have a spot in this stadium where we've got nothing. Somebody go out and whip me up a stuffed bear and two fake penguins, <laughs> and we're going to stick them in this cotton, and then that, that part of the stadium will be spoken for. And, like, that's the attention to detail and the kitschiness that you're dealing with with these outdoor games but, you know, and I'm here for it. It all, it all feeds you, the fun. You know why they can do that now? Here, here's the point that I wanted to get around to. You know why they can do that now? They can do that now because the actual game part of it, they have nailed. Yeah. They can do this so quickly. Like they, this is down to a science for them. This is like outdoor game in a box. So everything about the actual game itself because they've done it so many times. Like you remember the first few, and it's like, okay, this is a little bit awkward. Okay, they got to change this. Okay, this is still a work in progress. That's all done. Like, they know how to do this. The NHL yeah. has the outdoor concept and all and the execution nailed. That, Greg, has it seems to me, has become an afterthought. Now you can spend more time working on you know the uh, the Bobby Orr throwing out the first or shooting out the first puck the uh, the the penguin and the bear um, hey let's get the Boston pops um, yeah. you know all the all the fake snow and, and the runways along like oh, they can they have more time to do I thought listen I thought the the nice touch of having the Atlantic Division standings on the yeah. green monster yeah. looked fan- like looked fantastic like they yeah, had more time Ottawa to do all of that wish. Unless- Ottawa yeah, they're... <laughs> yes. for the division. They vanished. They, they, they don't exist. The green monster. Yeah. No, you're right, and, and that's why the Tahoe up. thing was such. That's why the Tahoe thing was such a stunning moment for the league. Like they rarely make a misstep when it comes to the actual execution of this game. So, like when they put on that Tahoe, those Tahoe games, and all of a sudden it's like, ah, the afternoon sun, my only weakness, and then all of a sudden the players are in yeah. puddles. You're like, no, this isn't. We haven't seen this forever for them not to have nailed the gameplay part of it but you're right you're right like the the details of the game are are sort of like 
you know, etched in automatic. And then you can kind of work on the ancillary stuff after that. Uh, okay, the game itself, uh, Jake DeBrusque with the heroics of two goals, although Linus Allmark would have stole the show if he would have nailed that empty netter. That would have been fantastic. Uh, <laughs> I was making this point the other day. Actually, I was make, making this point yesterday that if it weren't for what Eric Carlson is doing right now, would we not look at Jake DeBrusque and say he's the comeback player of the year? That from year we to would. year, maybe no one's, you know, he, Jake DeBrusque would be the guy, right? I think so, yeah. and and But to me... Rather than, I mean, since there is no comeback player of the year, unless you count the Masters Trophy, which Merrick, you and I both know, goes to the, the saddest story Ooh. amongst everybody and not the Ooh. comeback player of the year. Um, yes. I, I think instead, Jacob Rusk's resurgence is another plank in the platform of Jim Montgomery for Coach of the Year. Like, it, it's clear Monty had an impact on this guy. You know, he's talked about the conversations he's had with DeBrusk yep. about everything from fitness to, to where he fits on the team and everything like that. And and it's just another example of this guy comes into this situation in Boston and has had a revelatory impact on what was already a pretty good team. I mean, look, look, the Jack Adams usually goes to the guy who takes over a terrible team, finds a goalie, goalie carries him to the playoffs, guy wins coach of the year. It happens once every three years yep. in this league. Rare is the time yep. a, a, a really good team becomes excellent and then that guy becomes coach of the year. But I think we're going to see it this time with Montgomery. There's too many things that he's had his, his fingerprints on and that the Bruins are more than happy to cite him having his fingerprints on that have made this team the I mean, let's it's a juggernaut, the juggernaut that it is this year. Well, just watch them play like right away. And again, like every every coach has a different style. And I know the coaches will tell you, well, my style is based on the personnel that I have. But coaches have a style. And there's a way that they're comfortable. Um, this year's edition of the Boston Bruins, like we'll just be blunt. They play profoundly different than the edition, than the, uh, the, the Boston Bruins edition last year under Bruce Cassidy. And there was one moment that really captured all of it. It's early in the season, Wish. It's the Boston Bruins. I think they're playing. I think it was the Detroit Red Wings they're playing against. And it's overtime, and Hampus Lindholm grabs the puck behind his own net and goes end to end in overtime, mm-hmm. solo mission. And I remember talking to someone there saying, if that's Bruce Cassidy, is there any way that Hampus Lindholm does that? And he just started laughing. It was like, not a freaking chance does Hampus so, Lindholm do that if Bruce Cassidy's the coach? So what's funny is that you're now dealing with two coaches, both of whom have had profound impacts on their teams, and both of whom essentially were like, hey, defenseman, go do your thing. And, and that was all the change that was needed. In Boston, it's Montgomery. In Winnipeg, it's Rick Bonus. <laughs> like, Rick Bonus is like, oh, my God. You got Josh Worksy on this team. Yeah. Go, baby. Make it happen. And he did. And so, like, the, the, the subtlest changes and, and the trust in your players, which I think is probably, if you're looking for, like, a more ethereal impact for these guys in, in, in what some of their tactics do, it's essentially trust in the players. If you trust your defenseman enough to go up, to move up in the play, to make a play, to, to, to create the game winner on their own, um, I think that's sort of planting your flag and saying, I inherently trust you guys to, to, to be pros. I inherently trust you guys to be able yeah. to figure this out. Um, if you commit to what I'm doing, I'm going to commit to you. And I think in both Bonus's case and Montgomery's case, there's a lot of that. You know, the buy-in of the Winnipeg Jets defensively this year was something I never thought I'd see. 
<laughs> right? Like from guys that had had true. A, not even a tertiary interest of playing defense, now playing D for Rick Bonus. <laughs> and, and Montgomery, it's the same thing. He's gotten buy-in from his guys, and that's what the really good coaches are able to do. Okay, so let me let me know what you think about this one. So I'm of the belief that you know one of the main symmetries between the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Boston Bruins is the theory of keeping it all together, keeping the band together for uh, at least one more year to take another swing at this thing. The Penguins one is obvious because they go out and you know resign uh, uh, Evgeny Malkin and Chris Letang. They both come back to the mix. Is there not that element though? Like, not the same element when you look at the Boston Bruins. Like, we didn't know about Patrice Bergeron. That was a late decision to come back. I think mm-hmm. the Krejci decision may have surprised uh, a, a lot of people, and he returns here. Do you think for the Boston Bruins there is that element? And I know, listen, David Pasternak, if he resigns, there's still a stud player. Ditto Brad Marchand. He's not going anyway. Charlie McAvoy, you know, uh, is always going to be in the Norris Trophy conversation. The Hampus Lindholm story is well told, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But do you not think that there's this element of let's keep the band together here for one more rip at this thing with Bergeron, with David Krejci, and whatever we end up doing at trade deadline? Because we don't know if Bergeron's coming back. We don't know what's going to happen with David Krejci. We may have Bo Horvat as our number one center yeah. this time next season. Is there not this idea that this is the last shot for the Boston Bruins? Totally. Totally. And, and I think I think the Bergeron part of that is 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 the real thing right and 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 that's kind of what's been fun about this team is it it so very much feels like everybody um kind of rallying around the idea of of this being bergeron's last run and that's become the focal point and there's a deference to bergeron and 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 rightfully so like it's it's all really great it's all really fun and um and I'm here for it. And you're right. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I think there's probably a feeling of like, uh, you know, hey, uh, <laughs> you know, did this was this the right decision for the Penguins at the end of the day based on what's happened so far? Um, but in the Bruins case, one more kick at the can may end up being the, the best kick they've made. Yeah, they look fantastic. Okay, um, turn the page. I asked this question off the top of the show today rhetorically to anyone listening or watching. I'll ask you the same thing. Uh, they were drafted one year apart in different positions, but if I asked you, who would you rather have on your team right now, Jack Eichel or Tage Thompson, who would you choose? Oh, man. Oh, boy. For me, it's Tage Thompson. Do we... uh, really? Now, why? Uh, I think he's uh, a more dynamic player right now than than Jack. And this again, this is always it's always going to sound like you're devaluing the other player. Mm-hmm. I just think that we have someone who is you know every time he's he's on the ice he's a he's a threat to score. Not to say that Jack Eichel isn't, but I've seen Tage Thompson. It's not just that he's scoring goals; it's the the amount of like different ways that he can score goals. And by the way. I don't know that there's there's been a a better moment in the NHL recently than Tage Thompson 
in Washington scoring the Ovechkin one-timer goal from the Ovechkin spot. Please tell me that wasn't lost on you or anybody that was watching that game last night. He scored the Ovechkin. Like, that's like playing against Wayne Gretzky with the Oilers and setting up behind the net to try to score on Edmonton. (laughs) It's not lost on me any more than it was not lost on me that Ovechkin really got on his horse when Tage Thompson started scoring goals in his building. Um, You might be right. I mean, at the end of the day, like, this is now two seasons of proof of concept for Tage. Um, you, you, you might be right. Like, the thing about Thompson that I find really fascinating, I wrote about this today on, on, on ESPN.com. I did a little, like, uh, hope tiers of teams that have a chance to maybe make the playoffs or, or win the Cup. Um, yeah. The thing about Tage Thompson that I find really fascinating is the rate with which he scores. For example, Merrick, did you know that uh, since October 29th, Tage Thompson hasn't gotten more than two games without a goal. <laughs> two games without a goal. He hasn't gotten more serious? than two games without a point <laughs> this season. Like, that is the rate of scoring that we're seeing from this guy. It's it's incredible. Going goal for goal for goal with Ovechkin is one thing, but the, the rate that we're seeing scoring yeah. goals is, is phenomenal. Um He's younger too, isn't he? Than Eichel. That kind of factors factors. One year. Sort of little, one. One. Year. Just. 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 Just one. Just. Just one year. One was the Florida Ain't draft. And one was the. One was the Buffalo draft. That's absolutely nuts to me. God, Eichel started so young, didn't he? Um, I think I'd take Tage. You might, you might be right. Okay, so f- f- further to that one. So Steve Fellin, uh, who does Sportsnet Stats. So I asked him this morning. So I'm curious about Daniel Sprong. Like, I, I, I just love the story of Daniel Sprong. And I said, I'm just going to throw a dart here. And I'm going to guess that Daniel Sprong, uh, as far as points per dollar, okay, points per dollar in the NHL has to be number one. And so as we're talking, Steve Fellin just sent me this back. Sprong is actually number four in the NHL at points per dollar. Um, right now, he's got 11 goals, 11 assists, 22 points, uh, and he makes the league minimum. Okay, so he's 750. Daniel Sprong, points per dollar, $34,090 per point. That's number four. <laughs> do you want to take a shot? Do you want to take a shot? Do you want to take a shot at one, two, and three? No, go ahead. Just tell me. We just talked. We just we just talked about one. Tage Thompson is number one. Wow, twenty five thousand four hundred fifty four dollars a point. Now that's because he's still on the one point four million dollar deal. The uh, seven point one kicks in next year. That's going to look a lot different. Number two, Michael Bunting of the Maple Leafs, thirty two thousand seven hundred fifty eight. Number three, Gabriel Velarde at thirty three thousand. Per point. Wow. Now, Gabe Velarde's contract is nine fifty. Gabe Velarde. Well, he had that great start, right? Where every game he was scoring like two goals. He's at uh, eight hundred fifty thousand. So, and then Daniel Sprong comes in at uh, at number four. Now, when you look at ice time, Sprong's got the lowest ice time of any of those. But I always find that one interesting. Is everybody looks for cost efficiency? You know, who's got them? Who's got the? Who's delivering the best value? And right now, and again, the big part of the deal hasn't kicked in yet. But right now, no one's getting more value from any player than Tage Thompson and the Buffalo Sabres. That's yeah, what he's that's delivering sure. to them on a consistent so, basis. So do you think they do you think they get over the hump? Do you think that this is real? Do you think that they can win I, games 
five, five to four or six to five and, and actually make a run at the bubble? So here's what I wonder, here's what I wonder about. I think a lot of it is going to I think a lot of it is going to depend on what happens with Eric Comrie and how he plays when he gets back. Cuz have you have Great you been point. noticing what's been happening with the Buffalo's? Have you been noticing what's been happening with the Buffalo Sabres and their goaltending situation? So it's Ukapekalukanen and Craig Anderson. Mm-hmm. That's been the battery, right. okay? Now, since Comrie was out, uh Anderson has played 7 games, Lukanen's played 12. Yeah. Well, listen to the teams Lukanen's played against. All right? Washington, Boston, Vegas, Colorado twice, Pittsburgh, Tampa, St. Louis, Toronto. These are really hard games. Like, I don't think that the veteran would get a lot of these games, but not so fast. And then you look at Craig Anderson. I had a look at this this morning. I'm glad you brought this up. Um, Craig Anderson, Montreal, New Jersey, Detroit, Pittsburgh. That's good. Los Angeles, Arizona, Ottawa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, they're deliberately giving the weaker starts to Craig Anderson and this kid probably be the goaltender of the future for the, uh, for the Buffalo Sabres is doing a lot of the heavy lifting here. And he's been a lot better recently when he first started. It was, let's just say to be generous, awkward. So I think a lot of it is going to depend on what happens when Comrie gets back because the battery is going to go back to being Comrie and Anderson and Lauken is going to go back to, uh, to Rochester here. So I think so much. And I know that, uh, yeah, I, I would, I would imagine Right, they're not going to carry three. I don't think they're going to they're, they're going to do anything with with Craig Anderson. Uh, although teams did call last year at trade deadline about Anderson, I don't think he wanted to go. But I think a lot. I, I put it this way: I hope the Buffalo Sabers get over this hump. I would love to see them, you know, make this a real playoff race for that final wild card spot. I think there's is it six back of the Islanders right now. I think that's the number. I mean, I hope so. It's, but then again, yeah. I've wanted Buffalo to be good forever. <laughs> like haven't you? Well, yeah, we've. I got well when we were doing the show, like we talked about how Buffalo was was Chicago. That the minute they get good, the minute they start contending for a cup, you're going to see Buffalo people come out of the woodwork, like they have for the Bills in a lot of ways around the country, to yeah. support this team and cheer on this team and, and hope that this team can can be great and jump through flaming tables and the whole thing. Um, do you think <laughs> the faith in Comrie has been shaken? Do you think they have a little bit of a Jack Campbell syndrome with Comrie no, and not having played I, well I, with the weight of that contract? You see, I look at that. I uh, I really uh, I really look at um, I really look at Comrie and the Buffalo Sabers, and I wonder to myself, okay, there's a lot of teams that wanted Eric Comrie, but only one team seemed willing to give him a two-year contract. So someone has to really like him. I'm guessing it's the analytics department. Yeah. had to have really, really believed in Comrie. And I believe that Sam Ventura swings a big stick with that Sabres organization. And, and, and deserves a, so a good I don't, I, 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 And absolutely. So I, I, I think that – I don't think it's been, it's been shaken at all. I think that this is someone that, uh, that that department has wanted for a long time in Buffalo to the point where these – I think – like correct me if I'm wrong to your knowledge, Greg. I think they might have been the only team that offered two years. I think there are teams that wanted him. I wonder about, I think the Maple Leafs might have been one of them. But I don't think anybody was offering more than a one-year deal. Buffalo went two. Mm-hmm. You got to have like a real big belief in a guy. I mean, how many years did we say, oh, Eric Comrie's the best player not in the NHL, best goalie not in the NHL? And then that mm-hmm. kind of went away. And there was only really, it seemed, one team that really believed in him more so than just signing him to a one-year show-me deal. 
So I don't I yeah. don't think that it's been shaken. Do you? I hope not. I mean, I, I like I like the guy. I thought I thought that was a pretty shrewd signing uh, as far as like what was available on the goalie carousel. And so it was kind of a surprise to see him come out the blocks that poorly. But then again, like it takes a while. It takes a while when you're on any team. Hell, it took a while with Darcy Kemper last year with Colorado. People forget that about about Kemper. Like the first couple of months in Colorado, people were like. All right, I know group hour is terrible right now in Seattle, but maybe we can come back. <laughs> like it was not the best time. <laughs> it takes a while to understand the system, the personnel, who's coming back for the puck, who's yeah. not, all that stuff, and and maybe Comber just didn't have enough runway yet with the Sabers to really kind of rock all that. I hope they do well, man. I really do. Like I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to cheer for teams in this capacity, but I've always had a soft spot for the Buffalo Sabers. I, I really do, and I, I really I put it this way: there's some really cool personalities on this team, and some really dynamic players. Uh, I love Rasmus Dahlin. I think we all do. Um, what's not to like about Tage Thompson? Um, and there's like some really great young players on the horizon still that they got that they got. I mean, we haven't even like, talked about Owen Power yet. I don't know. <laughs> Owen Power's on this team. They're going to be fine. They're going to be. Power's gonna, on this gonna... team. They're coming out of it. They're they're going to be all right. And now mm-hmm. they've got a star. Now they've got somebody to build around, and and somebody who, in theory, wants to be what there you... too, which is the other big the other big part of this. Yes. What do you make of ran on waivers? Like this just looks like cold hearted hockey decision. You know, we're going to activate a couple of players, and we need the spot. Regardless yeah, of what of ran has just been through, it. and we'll get. I get, I get, we're we're going to find out in thirty it. minutes here if he clears if he cleared yeah and just so far as like what he's been through and you know i feel like there's this we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg insofar as that relationship and 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 what's gone on behind the scenes so it it really does strike you as curious but i was just telling somebody this morning like i just want to see this guy play again like there are a few players in this league that are create your own offense um explosive scoring type guys like Verana is and and it's a bummer if he's not going to be kind of a part of what they're building there, because I felt like he could certainly be a part of it. Um, but who knows what, what the plans are, who knows if it's just calculation for the moment or if it's something uh, deeper and more systemic than that. I, I, I honestly, I just wonder if it's just this, just Steve Eiserman cold business, regardless of what Varan has gone through, we need the spot. Well, we, yeah. need, we need the spot, you you've, know, whether it's Fabry or whether it's Bertuzzi, like we need the spot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, they're, they're, I mean, they're, listen, is... man, they're, Stevie, Stevie's great. He's an incredibly gifted executive, but he's also the first guy to yank back the Christmas bonuses. Let's be honest. Like, <laughs> company's struggling. <laughs> nobody's getting nobody's yep. getting anything in the stocking this year. Like Steve Eiserman, and that's just who he is. Yeah, it's uh, man. I always remember Veranda's draft. So I would have been Philadelphia draft. I, I remember the discussion that year was who was going to be the better Czech sniper. Was it going to be Verana or was it going to be David Pasternak? Uh, Pasternak was mm-hmm. injured a lot that year as well, and Verana had some really good tournaments. But I, I was always waiting. Like I'm with you. Like I love, I love watching Jacob Verana, and I thought you know there's a healthy Jacob Verana on that top six with the Detroit Red Wings. Yes, sign me up all day long. You know, I want to see him play with Dylan Larkin. Um, but I've always sort of been waiting for him to have at least like a Pasternak light type season because mm-hmm. that was the conversation going uh, going into the draft that year. Speaking of that draft, um, Sonny Milano 
So that was the year Sonny Milano got drafted uh, by the Columbus Blue Jackets. Um, and Sonny Milano, who Calgary had in their camp, and eh, yeah, not interested, signs with the Washington Capitals. And all of a sudden, and we'll dovetail this into a conversation about the Caps. We only got a couple of minutes here, but Sonny Milano looks good with the Washington Capitals. Yeah. And now the Washington Capitals are getting healthy. Like, despite the loss last night against the Buffalo Sabres, are we all getting back on the Capitals train here again, Wish? So I was talking to somebody about the Capitals earlier this week, and um, this was somebody that I spoke to at the beginning of the season who was not all that enamored with the job that Peter Laviolette was doing. And this -hmm. person told me something very interesting about the Capitals, and I'll share it with you here, Merrick. That at the beginning of the season, the Caps were given instructions to just out-hit everybody every game. The forecheck was 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 uh, was the priority. It was a bit reckless. It was a little bit too loose. Um, they're not great on the back end, and even and this was in the early stages of Kemper before he really got rolling. And they put way too much stress on on their D and their goalies, um, and they were getting scored on because the Capitals would be up ice on the forecheck. They didn't really know how to defend the transition plays, and henceforth were losing games. Roundabouts early December, La Boulette changed the system. Uh, it's more about uh, speed, controlling the speed of the opposition. It's more about pace of play. Pace of play. It's a bit more of a friendly system, I think, to the veterans on the Capitals, uh, in particular, number eight. And uh, from that point on, if you check the standings, they won a lot of hockey games and did not lose many. <laughs> Maybe lost one. Um, and so... <laughs> You had this guy in Peter Laviolette, who is the veteranist of veteran coaches in this league. And they came into the season with one plan, and it didn't really work. And they changed tactics two months of the season, and it's worked like gangbusters. And it really struck me as being kind of an interesting thing of, like, the confidence a veteran coach has in his kung fu to maybe admit a mistake or maybe admit the wrong Mm -hmm. tactic was deployed – and then, and then changing horses in midstream versus maybe a young coach that decides to define insanity by doing the wrong thing over and over and over again. Like, I thought that was a really interesting thing behind the scenes with the Caps. And, mm. and again, like you said, the, the reinforcements are almost here in Tom Wilson and Nick Backstrom. They're in a playoff spot right now. They've done beyond what I thought they'd do as far as, like, maintaining a safe distance to the playoffs. But now they're in a playoff spot, pretty, pretty inconstant one. Um so they're in good shape, uh, but much better shape than I thought they'd be this year. And th- and three teams who need to thank Brian McClellan right away. One, the Maple Leafs for Samsonov. Two, the Devils for Vanacek. And number three, probably most profoundly, with a record of 9-1, and one, the Los Angeles Kings with Phoenix Copley, <laughs> no, who it's has completely... Stupid completely saved Los Angeles' season to the point where they're only a couple of points away from top spots. See, uh, this is, this is, this is why I'm, I am never going to ever try to figure out goaltending. The league save percentage is like <laughs> 700. The two guys that are I know. saving their teams this year are Phoenix Copley and Martin Jones. Like, what, yep. what, what multiverse of madness is this? Where things are going in that direction in this league. I love it. Uh, sign me up for the chaos. Uh, listen, you enjoy the rest of your day, my good man. I uh, wish we got to spend more time together in Boston, uh, but at least we get our weekly you know, check-in on Wednesdays here, pal. You be good. 
you be good too and uh and happy uh world junior uh, usa canada day to everyone it's my favorite day of the year where i don't care about the outcome unless we win and then you guys have to have all your symposiums about how do we find goalies you so good yes where what i like about you is you don't care who wins but you just want one team to lose that's what that's i really right. admire about you and hannah how, how, how you handle the u20 that's such a beautiful that's thing exactly uh right. you be good uh <laughs> Greg Wyshynski from ESPN up against it here. Um, thanks to Greg as always for stopping by. Hitting a break, you're going to hear from. Oh man, this is a really nice. This is we just released this this morning on the Thirty Two Thoughts podcast. Um, this is Phil Bork. You're going to hear from in a couple of moments. Some really interesting discussion about Yarmir Yager uh, and what is in the future with Yager and the Pittsburgh Penguins. Stay tuned. Phil Bork uh, from Thirty Two Thoughts in moments. Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network.